You're listening to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, recorded July 1st, 2020. Canadian games, eh? Some great games from Canadian designers, plus a review of Supercats and plays of Batman, The Mind, and a new Telestrations. Hello, and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 97, Great Games, eh? Some of the best games from Canadian game designers. I'm Sean, originally from Windsor, but gone, and now live live from Windsor, the tabletop bellhop himself, Moti. I am the tabletop bellhop, your cardboard concierge, the RPG maitre d', answering your gaming and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. Let me put my years of game playing, event organizing, and game night hosting to use for you. I'd like to welcome everyone in the lobby here on Twitch. You can join us Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop. First off, let me say happy Canada Day to those of you here live, though I'm not sure how many Canadians we have in the lobby, but either way, I hope your day has been going well. In honor of Canada Day, today we will be talking about some of the best tabletop games from Canadian board game designers. In addition to that, we have a review in the Bellhop's Tabletop, sorry, a review of Super Cats from the Op. And when we get to our week in review in the Bellhops Tabletop, I've got our first plays of Talisman Super Villains Edition, a few rounds of The Mind, two-player, uh, some plays of Codenames Duet, both using the campaign mode, as well as trying the team-based game, and a five-player game of Super Cats, and our first play of Telestration's Upside Drawn. We love interacting with our listeners and viewers. Each week, we're going to highlight some of our interactions with you fine folk. We'll share some feedback we received, comments on our content, and maybe some gaming discussions we've been part of. We want to share what people are saying, both positive and negative. We appreciate your comments and suggestions, and if you'd like to let us know something about the show, send your feedback to mo at tabletopbellhop.com and or sean at tabletopbellhop.com. That's S-E-A-N. You can also hit us up on social media, where I can be found everywhere as tabletopbellhop, one word. And I can be found as Dark Elf LX. Up first, a comment on our Shadow Kingdoms of Valeria preview from last week. Ian Pan comments, I'm colorblind, so nice to hear they gave a thought about us. Excellent. Uh, thanks, Ian. I agree. It's great to see more and more publishers taking this into account with their games. Luke Shearus has a comment about our 200 free games released from publishers to keep you busy while stuck at home during the pandemic. Luke writes, that list is a bit daunting. Maybe you could recommend your top five or top five for casual gamers and five for serious gamers or a good sample bundle that gives you a taste of different game styles. Well, thanks for the comment, Luke. I, I do agree. This list is rather daunting. There is a ton on there from different publishers and different games covering all types of games and game types. Uh, to be honest, I haven't tried any of these myself. Um, doing a top five or whatever is probably a good podcast topic to do in the future. Um, but personally, I haven't played any of these. So one of the problems is I got plenty of games on my personal pile of shame or the pile of obligation, that I haven't had the need to print off anything to keep me busy. But I did go through the list quickly just to be able to give you an answer, Gene. Uh, or sorry, Luke. I have heard Land, Air, and Sea is fantastic. I know people who have bought the physical copy. Uh, Seven Wonders Duel is really cool game. Actually, way better than the original Seven Wonders, in my opinion. And I really like the fact you can play it solo. I think that's really cool. Uh, the Choose Your Own Adventure games have been well regarded. There's two of them in that bundle. Uh, all of the digital games, I got to say, are good. Like, everyone I can see there. The Asmodee digital implementations of their board games are phenomenal. Like, as good as, if not better, than some of their physical games. Plus, you can also play online, which is 
really great right now with the social distancing and not being able to get together with people. Uh, solo rules for Carcassonne seems pretty cool to me. I've always been a huge fan of Carc. It'd be interesting to try that solo player. Uh, an older one, I don't know if Sean remembers this, but we used to play this at the Second Cup downtown, and it's Lord of the Fries from Cheap Ass Games. That used to be a ton of fun. Um, Xenoshift Onslaught, that is a cooperative deck builder that is basically Starship Troopers with the numbers filed off. I really like that one. There's a lot of rules for helping out, like co-op, for passing cards to each other and building your deck just to help other people. So that one's really cool. Arcadia Quest, uh, which is from one of the designers we'll be featuring later tonight, Eric Lang, is a great game. And that's another one you can now play the campaign solo. Uh, code names. I was just playing earlier today. The online version of this is perfect. Like they, they couldn't have done it better. So that's well worth playing. And you can just play with strangers. You can join in, in a game at any time. Uh, Keyforge is a card game. The one with the unique decks that is really neat. Sean and I used to play that. We haven't played it since we were at a con together. Deanna also enjoys it. That's a great game. And what they have here is some decks you can just print and play. And from what I understand, they're really well balanced decks. Uh, the standalone scenarios for Detective are supposed to be pretty good. Haven't tried them. I have heard really good stuff about the Stoneware Rolling Right. Um, and finally, I know I'm not a huge Pandemic fan, but I know they are out there. And solo rules from Pandemic are going to let you play that very popular game by yourself. We're going to finish off with a handful of comments on our topic of dealing with gamers who aren't willing to try new things. Richie Miles writes, Oh man, there have been a few of these in my gaming groups. Urgh. And Jess Nutt has a bit more to say with, There's a person in one of my groups that for the longest time either wanted to play werewolf in every game or tried to play female characters. He's male and half the group is women. The person does not play female characters well, often being sexually promiscuous, but then complaining when the GM brings up things like STDs or pregnancy. It got to the point where all of us women had to sit down and tell him that he can't play female characters anymore, because when he does, he's so incredibly insulting and misogynistic in how he does it. He didn't realize how he was acting and how it was perceived, and he agreed to stop. He still tries to play werewolf or shapeshifters every chance he gets, and we've mostly resigned ourselves to that and just plan accordingly. In the last game we played, and we, we drew our special abilities out of a random deck of cards, and he completely randomly pulled the shapeshifter power from a deck of 40 options. We all laughed that it was faded and let him keep it. In our current game on hold, he really broke out of his normal mode, mold of his own choosing. We were a little concerned because he picked a leadership role character and has never done well in diplomacy situations up to this point, but we didn't want to discourage him. But he's actually doing really well and I hope this encourages him to keep trying new things. Personally, I've been doing this for so long, I go out and try to find the worst combination of race class that I can manage just to do something different. One of my favorites was a lawful evil female elf monk who used spiked brass knuckles coated in poison. People saw a petite, skinny, unarmed elf and assumed she was a squishy spellcaster. Also, no one ever caught on to the evil alignment, no matter how obvious I tried to make it. Well, thanks for the comments, uh, first Richie and Jess. Uh, what I love about Jess's story here, and I love getting this longer feedback, actually, the long-form feedback I really appreciate, is 
Uh, the fact it did basically what we talked about during the episode on this when we were talking about gamers who won't change what they're doing is that was to stop the game and sit down and have that conversation, to have that uh, session zero in the middle of your campaign, the intermission, as we were calling it, or, or the, the, the session reboot, right? And what I thought was awesome about this is that it worked, right? So in Jess's case... They sat down and talked to the player who was playing females in a way you don't want anyone playing females. And the player didn't even realize they were doing it or that it was a problem. And once it was brought to their attention, they corrected the behavior. That is exactly what you want to see and why we say it's when you get to that point, it's time to sit down and have that adult conversation. It really is going to help out your group in the long run. And and unfortunately, I think it's just probably a shame that it took a little bit too long to get to that. But the fact that the changes was made is a positive thing. And and we can definitely, uh, definitely look at that. And I do like that they don't mind that he's playing werewolves. Because as I said, if someone plays the same thing all the time in their games and it's not affecting anyone else, who cares? Let them do it if that's what they find fun. Yep. Now, finally, Danny Vandermeer, Murray? Vander Murray wrote on yumi.social to say, interesting read. Uh, Yes, a lot comes down to a person's underlying psychology or personality traits and won't necessarily be the game. At the other end of the spectrum, spectrum are people who game hop and don't want to settle on any particular game long enough to really enjoy it. I wonder if those same traits show up in real life jobs. Interesting thought. Danny, um, my guess would be yes. I like I'm guessing these are probably personality traits that affect all aspects of that person's lives, not just gaming. They probably buy a you know lease cars and get a new car every two years, or the opposite. They've been driving the same jalopy, or they always will buy a Ford no matter what. They'll only buy a Ford. I, I I'm guessing it's probably personality traits, not just gaming specific. All right, well, that's it for this week's comments. Thank you to everyone who shares, comments, and interacts with our content. A few quick announcements before we continue. We keep growing with the support of fans like you. So if you're on a social media site, we're probably there too. But if we're not, let us know and we'll rush on over. Yeah, it was cool. We just got a comment on Yumi Social. This, uh, I don't know how new the site is, but a lot of the G Plus veterans are saying this is the next G Plus. I don't know yet. I haven't made up my mind. Um, One of the main problems with the site right now, which is going to be a deal breaker for a lot of people, is that you cannot block other users. So if you do have a bad interaction with someone, there's nothing you can do about it. So, But it is a new option that's out there that that some of the G Plus people are trying out. I'll admit I'm there. I posted a couple things. I recognize a few names. I did hook up with someone I haven't seen since G Plus closed, so that was cool. But we are starting to see a couple comments there. So there are some people there. You can check it out if you want. It's youmeoneword.social. That is not an endorsement, just if you want to take some time, <laughs> check it out. Right. Uh, sign up to receive Tabletop Bellhop Weekly in your inbox. Uh, once a week, I send out an email recapping all the content we released in the week previous. Blog posts, new podcast episodes, unboxing videos, whatever we put out, we laced it all in this newsletter so you get a, a one-stop shop of everything we put out each week. At least as long as Mailer Lite is working, because right now this week's newsletter has not gone out uh, due to something they caused themselves due to updating. Our email list right now shows zero subscribers. I really hope we haven't lost anyone it sounds like it just has to be re-indexed. But if you were looking for an email today, a newsletter today, it obviously didn't show up. I'm hoping to get it out later tonight or tomorrow. But uh, we normally, though, this is the first time we've had this problem, send out a newsletter every Wednesday. You can sign up at newsletter.tabletopbellhop.com and hopefully 
if you've already signed up, you won't need to again. Yeah, I hope so. I, like, I'm I'm concerned. They've been down for, what'd you say, 19 hours, I think it looked like? That's not good. It, yeah. Four hour, four days ago was when the upgrade that started the problem happened. They started fixing it a day ago. So, Ooh, <laughs> so they didn't even realize it was a problem at first. Ouch. Uh, so one other thing we have. So we have a new way for you to get your gaming and game night questions to us, and that's through Skype. All you have to do is boot up Skype on your PC or phone and contact Sean, S-E-A-N, at tabletopbellhop.com and leave a message after the beep. You may even get to hear your messages played during our live show and on our podcast. All right, if you're a fan of what we do here at Tabletop Bellhop, whether that's our unboxing videos or you dig our Gloomhaven actual plays, or you head over to the blog every week and read our Ask the Bellhop articles, or you tune in Wednesday nights to this live show, or just sub to our podcast, or whatever else we create, the best way you can show your support is through our Patreon page. In addition to our thanks and gratitude, you can get access to all kinds of bonus content, depending on the level you choose to support us. For only $2, you can get copies of our pre-production show notes, behind-the-scene blog posts, and access to our private Discord server. Other uh, higher-level rewards include things like our bonus audio from every one of our podcasts that includes our pre-show banter, the mid-episode coffee break, the pento suite after show, and any outtakes from the episode. Now, access to patron-only polls are, can be unlocked where you can help us decide our episode topics. There's a chance to game with us once a month. And there's select concierge services like game night planning and game collection curation. Head over to patreon.com slash tabletopbellhop and check out all we have to offer and say thanks by tipping the bellhop. We start Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern here on Twitch, and we love people who drop in and take part in the chat room of the lobby. If you're here live, remember to stick around as we continue the show after the double bell with more chat and some content that otherwise only our patrons get. So one of the things I got for tonight's after show is I've got a package here to open up. Let's see. It just says it's from Lightning Source in Etobicoke, Ontario. And I don't know if anyone in our chat room knows what that means, but that means this is something print on demand from Drive-Thru RPG. I happen to know what's in here. I've got a, a well, pretty good idea, like 99.9% sure. So I will be opening up this in the after show so you can see what we got. Something that I'll be re-reviewing in the coming weeks. All right, what do we got going on in the lobby? So far, uh, so far, we've got our uh, Canadians represent calling out for the Canada Day celebrations and uh, it's a little bit of talk. They've been trying to keep the uh, free games list up to date, which yeah. is a moving target uh, as publishers add and remove things on a monthly or, or shorter basis. Yeah, with it being the first of the month, there is a chance right now if you go over there, it might be out of date just because a lot of publishers had things scheduled until the end of June. And now that we're into July, they may have ended it. So that is something uh, we actually plan to update by the end of the week is our goal. Uh, Deanna was actually talking about updating it earlier in the week. I'm like, there's no point. We're going to update it. And then July 1st is going to hit. We're going to have to go through it all again. So for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, over on the webpage, right at the top, it says 200 free board games or something like that and 50 free RPGs. And what these are is things we found that publishers have put out to keep us busy while stuck at home due to COVID or the pandemic. Now, I realize some of you are no longer stuck at home, but some of us are. Uh, here, here in Windsor, we are still... Uh, ordered to stay home as much as possible, only going out for essential things, though parts of the economy have opened up. And these are things that people have put out, pay what you want or free. And these 
isn't like like it's not a list of every free RPG on Drive Through RPG. That would be crazy. You can go to Drive Through RPG and click on free. These are games specifically released to help people out during COVID. So that's that's what these two lists are. And like I said, we got we need to go back through them. Now I see Ryan is looking forward to trying out the court expansion to King Domino. So that's worth pointing out too. It's not just free games. Some of it is free expansions or free expansion content for existing games. But there are a number of like completely free games. Like we mentioned the Keyforge decks earlier. There are I th- I'd say either two or four complete Keyforge decks. Now the print and play, you got to print them yourself. You probably want to sleeve them, but it lets you play Keyforge for free. Like come on. Not that it's yeah, normally no, an expensive I... game, but Xeno shit. Oh, there like, were, time, there were times when print and play would be uh, would be tough. Would have been great because you couldn't buy a Keyforge deck. Yeah, for there quite was a, while. a time. Yes, <laughs> there was a time. Uh, Pennywise is noting they love Arcadia Quest. That is a really neat game. Uh, we were just talking about it a couple days ago. I, I love the Shibi miniatures. Like I didn't think I'd like it. I'm like, in general. Okay, Samurai Pizza Cats is a bad example because I'm going to talk about how I love that and that's cheapy. But in general, the whole giant head, the size of the rest, the Sanrio thing, I, I don't really care. And when I heard Arcadia Quest was going to have cheapy minis, I'm like, yeah, but then I saw like the goblins and then the necromancers, the guy that looks like Tim Pine. I was just like, oh, these are amazing. And then the gameplay, it's just so unique because it's semi-co-op, right? You have like up to four different uh, teams of like fantasy teams sitting there and trying to battle, but also complete a mission at the same time. And then there's the semi, the, the campaign play where something at least carries over from the previous mission, though not a lot, is not as much as I'd like. Like, I'd like if you level up your guys to stay leveled up. Instead, you get, like, some kinds of unlocks that'll matter for later missions. Really neat game. The problem with it, though, is that it you need the same group to play it, or you play in one night and play for, like, six to eight hours to do a full campaign. And not a lot of people have time to do that. But other than that, I love the game. Unfortunately, in my collection, it tends to gather dust. Because when things are normal, I play a lot of games at public play events where I'm often introducing new people to new games. And it's not the kind of thing where I'm going to spend the entire event just playing Arcadia Quest for one. And even more so, I'm not going to be able to bring it back the next week. Like, I'm not going to bring it one Friday and we play it. I'm not going to get the same people next Friday to be able to continue it. Yep. Uh, Other than that, we've... uh... Got not too much going on. It is a holiday here in Canada, so I'm sure a lot of our uh, regulars are off doing family things and enjoying barbecues and uh, events in a socially responsible and isolated manner. Hopefully. Hopefully. We did. I'll admit, we did. We went over to my mother-in-law's for for Canada Day, but that is part of our our circle of 10 as what they're they're allowing here in Canada is you are, you can pick 10 people that you don't have to social distance with, don't have to wear masks with, but like it's 10 only. Like, so it can't be like I hang out with those five, but those five also hang out with five others and they hang out like it's, we only ever see each other. So it's, it's the five of us in my immediate family, Deanna's mom and Deanna's sister. And that's it. That's our whole our whole circle at this point and we were over there playing some games which you'll hear about when we get to our weekend review in the bellhops tabletop segment all right well let's uh keep moving on we're here to answer your game gaming game night questions you can send your questions to questions at tabletopbellhop.com or head over to tabletopbellhop.com and click on ask the bellhop uh, social media works too. We're everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Now, the best way is for questions to come through the website. That way they get indexed and I get a nice notification and I go in my email. So they're like in two different places. I'm not going to say no to a question asked by anyone anywhere. Since it's July 1st, Canada Day today, while we're recording, we thought it would be cool to highlight some of the best games from Canadian game designers. And we are so sorry. 
Note this list is based on game designers born in Canada, uh, many of which may not live here anymore for some reason, which I'll never understand, and many of whom whose games are being published by U.S. or other game companies. Now, I did consider doing a top list of games from Canadian publishers because there are a surprising number of them. There was way more than I would have thought, or perhaps even doing like top five Canadian publishers because there's enough. There could be a top five. But right now, we're just going to stick to Canadian designers. But if perhaps we can return to one of those other topics in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And we are not following CanCon rules, even though they have moved away from Canada. <laughs> I they're still Canadian in heart. Uh, I know, yes. you know Brian Adams no longer can, counts as CanCon for music, even though he was really? born here. I, I but uh, if we but, were yeah. actually a Canadian radio show, we would have to do this regularly. We would have That's to true. have a certain percentage of Canadian games mentioned on our on our show. But we are not technically a broad, radio broadcast. But tonight, it's all at least in this segment of the show, all Canada, all the time. All right. Well, if this uh, if the uh, other list of game publishers or top five publishing list is something you're interested in us covering, drop us a note and let us know. Yeah, it's not something on our list, but if it's something people are interested in, we'll do it. I did most of the research for it basically by default already. All right, so game number one. Uh, we just talked about uh, the designer of this one, Eric M. Lang, uh, a couple weeks ago on our Black Games Matter episode. Uh, due to the fact that we just featured one of Eric's games then, I'm going to pick a different game. At that time, I featured Chaos in the Old World, one of the most asymmetric games out there, and probably one of the reasons why I like asymmetric games so much. I'm going to go with Rising Sun this time. This is a fantasy feudal Japanese folk on a map game with some really cool stuff going on, including the ability to summon these giant monsters, a very cool tea ceremony system where every round players are going to be partnered up and one of the most unique and rewarding combat systems I've ever encountered in a board game. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, this actually brings back the concept of Kami, which we were talking about for yes. our uh, Katana game. Um it is, uh, this one's a little more beefy though. It is for yeah. three to five players, not just a two player card game. Uh, and it's got a uh, pretty hefty weight of it. It's, it's over a three on, wow. uh, on board game geek. So it's a, uh, it's a thinker for three to five players. That is rising sun. Up next, we have Junk Art. Uh, this is from the Bamboozle Brothers, two Canadians. That is Jay Cormier and Sen Foon Lim. Uh, this is by far my favorite stacking-based dexterity game. Not dexterity game overall, stacking-based dexterity game, because it's basically like getting a bunch of different games in one box. Because each session you sit down to play, you draw three random cards that actually determine which games you're playing in it. And sometimes you're building your own thing. Sometimes you're working together with teams, with, with other players. Sometimes it's cooperative. It might be timed or you could be drafting pieces or you might be handing pieces to your opponents. It's the variety of different versions of stack a bunch of weird wood blocks together that brings me back to this one over and over. Well, it's not my personal go-to choice for dexterity games. There are other ones that, that I would jump on first, but you cannot deny that it is very well thought out and combines an assortment of mechanics mm -hmm. and, and play that's just melded together so well. Mm -hmm. And that is Junk Art. All right, on to our first role-playing game suggestion. We are going to have a mix of both mix of both role-playing games and uh, board games tonight is Feng Shui or Feng Shui or however you want to pronounce it. I'm just going to go with Feng Shui. And yes, I know that's the Americanized pronunciation by Robin D. Laws, a famous Canadian designer. If you 
go to Toronto, well, not during COVID. If you go to Toronto on Young Street and go to the Panera, you're probably going to see Robin working on his latest game. I am a huge fan of Eastern Asian cinema, as well as some Western cinema inspired by it. Kung Fu movies, Wire Fu, Wuja movies, and Gung Fu flicks, like pretty much anything but Zhang Wu. I, I, I don't know why. I, I just love Eastern Asian cinema. Feng Shui takes all of these, like the, the gun fu, the kung fu, the historic dramas, and mashes them all together into a single world in Feng Shui. You play secret warriors battling through time to protect Feng Shui sites the world over. I love the first edition of this game, still to this day love that, and there is an updated second edition out there that was well-funded through Kickstarter, which I admit I've got a copy. I'll admit I haven't read my copy of Feng Shui 2, but I do own it and back to Kickstarter happily. Yeah, this is one that uh, I probably would have gotten to at a con this year had the yeah. uh, pandemic not broken out. But uh, unfortunately, that'll have to wait till uh, con season resumes, and that is Feng Shui. Up next is Sagrada. This dice drafting game is from Adrian Adamescu and Daryl Andrews. Uh, I gotta admit, it's been a while since we talked about Sagrada. For a while there, it was like every episode we were talking about Sagrada. Uh, despite that, I still really enjoy this game. In it, players are drafting colored dice to place onto a stained glass window pattern board. At the start of the game, everyone gets a unique pattern they're trying to build. Now, the trick is that the pattern is going to need certain colors or numbers in certain spots. And you can't put a die next to another die with the same color or number, which makes it way more thinky than it looks. Yeah, no, I know a lot of people who really love this game and I see pictures of it pop up regularly and people say, hey, this is what we were playing today or this week, uh, pictures on Twitter. It's uh, interesting it's, it's, to note, so Pennywise in the chat, who um, on their, their podcast noted they are both colorblind, notes that Sagrada is not colorblind friendly. I did not realize that. That is disappointing. Like, I wonder if they could put out special Sagrada dice so that the pips are symbols. So instead of all circles, you have triangles on one color, squares on another color, diamonds on another, or something like that. I'm actually, I'm surprised I hadn't heard this before. That That's disappointing to know. Yeah, no, that's not, I guess it, in, in, in hindsight, not surprising. Um, True. <laughs> yeah, you got red and green uh, dice. As soon as you put red yeah. and green together, <laughs> you, yeah. you you hit most the most basic form of colorblindness. Yeah. All right, well... <sighs> Uh, that was Sagrada. All right, next, Lanterns the Harvest Festival. This is a very unique tile laying game that comes from Christopher Chung. In Lantern, players are trying to collect sets of different colored lanterns by placing four-sided tiles. Now, on each side of the tile is a color of lantern. The neat bit here is that when you place down your tile, you're going to get one lantern for each side you match. And that seems like the kind of thing you'd see in every tile laying game, right? But then everyone yourself and all your opponents are going to get one more lantern based on where they're seated in relation to the tile that was just played. And I love the fact that this game's all about helping yourself without trying to help the other players more. Yeah. Uh, so the helping mechanic and choosing how much to help rather than basing everything off of negative actions against players is really such a great thing to see in a game. Conflict through conflict through minimization rather than mm. reduction or harm. Uh so that gets you Lanterns, the Harvest Festival. All right, back on the RPG horse. Next, I have High Plains Samurai by Todd Crapper. I first got to try out this rather unique role-playing game at Breakout Con 2017, then got to play again with Todd running, Todd the designer himself, at QCC in Buffalo, New York in 2019. And now I'm hooked. After, after those two games, Todd had me sold. 
Now, Todd has mashed up Kung Fu, Mad Max, Fist of the North Star, a bunch of other animes, and probably 20 other things in this over-the-top, crazy, cinematic, post-apocalyptic storytelling game. Now, I've actually got signed copies of this one in my collection because I liked it so much. Now, for people interested in checking it out, in addition to just High Plains Samurai, there is also High Plains Samurai Legends, which is a more streamlined edition, a smaller book, more affordable, that includes set scenarios and pre-generated characters. Well, sadly, my chance to give this one a try has been plagued by, well, the plague. <laughs> but that is High Plains Samurai that I'll get to eventually, one of these days. One of these days, one of these days. I want to see someone other than Todd run it. I think that that would be fascinating to see. Because I got to admit, I've only played with the designer, and and Todd runs a good game. So, up next, I have Santorini. Uh, this abstract strategy game is based on the island of the same name. It was designed by Dr. Gordon Hamilton, which in board game industry is mostly known as just Gord. Gord designed a number of abstract games over the years, but Santorini is definitely the most popular. It's the one most people know. Uh, there are two things that I love about Santorini. The first is how awesome it looks on the table, because you are slowly taking turns building up the white-walled, blue-domed buildings that you see in the island of Santorini. And it, like, you literally are just building them with plastic pieces, and it looks like all the pictures you've seen. Any place you go to buy euros, you've probably seen a picture of Santorini on the wall. And second is how quickly the game plays, despite being very tactical. Like, this is one of those games like chess. Like, yeah, I can teach you the rules in five minutes, but I can't teach you chess in five minutes. So checkers is a better example. I can teach you how to play in five minutes. All you do is move and then build something, and the first person to get to the third floor wins. I basically just gave you the, the, the simple version of the rules, but man, once you play with someone where it clicks in, it gets so cutthroat and so thinky. This is a fantastic game. And then you throw in the god rules to give everyone special powers just to mix it up once you've already mastered the basic game. This is one that anyone who likes abstract games should seek out and find. Yeah, and I think this is probably one that surprises a lot of people as being Canadian yeah. or even North American as it has a real Euro vibe. Though I'm sure many would probably argue that a game that looks that good on the cable table can't be a Euro. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> so I that way, it's, it's a, I, you're, our abstracts Euro. I don't even know. Like, they don't really fit. They're not thematic, so I guess they're not Amerithrash. Like, yeah, me, that's a third category. It's like you have an Amerithrash, yeah. you have a Euro, and then you have Abstracts. Because Abstracts are just something different. Well, that was Santorini. All right, this one's a surprise of mine. Uh, 1812, The Invasion of Canada, which I guess I should have figured as Canada the name. Uh, this is by Jeff Stahl and Bo Beckett. I actually had no clue until doing the research for this topic that this game was, at least in part, one of the two designers is Canadian. I am happy to see it, though, because I really dig this game from Academy Games. This is from their uh, Birth of America series of games. Um, this is a light, not too light, lighter, card-driven, cube-based war game that is extremely approachable. And this is the game that I recommend, this or any game in the series, really. It doesn't have to be 1812. Personally, I like 1812 also because uh, the region I live in was a big part of the War of 1812. And cities that I've been to and forts I have walked through are on the map and part of the game. So it's a, it's a historically relevant game for what it is for, for, for our area. Like, if you know someone who's like, oh, I love Euros, or I love Catan, but I kind of want to try a war game. Like, you know, Hex Encounters and all that. It, this is a to me, the gateway war game. This is one of the best ways to, to dip your feet 
into what wargaming can be without having to go whole hog and look at a giant binder like Advanced Squad Leader. It's also one of the best team games I played. They did a brilliant job because it's actually a an lopsided team game with three players on one side and five and two on the other, five total. And I honestly think the game really shines at five players. You can play it two, three, but five players, you really get to see it. Well, I wonder, do you have one last giant battle after truce is declared? It would be a historically <laughs> accurate way to finish out game turns. Uh, uh, no, you do not, actually. That's not in there. But truce uh, does get called. That is one of the, the way the game ends is all the players on one side have played their truce card. And then it's whoever owns the most cities wins. For anyone uh, not a history buff, uh, after the truce was declared, uh, a massive battle occurred because no one told the folks uh, at the uh, at the Battle of New Orleans that uh, there was already a truce declared. Uh, but that was 1812, the invasion of Canada. All right. Next, back into the story games is Diaspora. This is a role playing game from Brad Murray of VSCA. Uh, productions. The story behind this one is is why I bought it. Is you had a group of gamers who love hard sci-fi, right? So like you're you're we're, we're thinking starships and spacemen, but we're thinking Larry Niven versus say George Lucas, right? And what they played at the time was Traveler because it was the closest they could find to a hard sci-fi role-playing system. But they really didn't like the D6 based system in Traveler. Then they discovered Fate, and this game came out early in the in the Fate history, like like Spirit of the century old fate and immediately went to work converting the current traveler game to this new system of fate. And then a couple years later, they released it and diaspora is the end result. So it is traveler redone in the fate system. Yeah. I really need to get more fate games under my belt because I, I get the concept and it, it, it makes sense and I understand it. I even have my fate dice over here. Uh, but uh I, I just, because I haven't played a lot of them, I struggle to picture when they're discussing the the, the, mm -hmm. the resolution and, and, the, and the method of playing a Fate game. Uh, but I am definitely interested in, in, in the Diaspora one specifically because I am a hard sci-fi Yeah, uh, you're lover. definitely a fan. I'll, so, I'll admit, uh, I'm, I'm definitely more on the George Lucas side of things. Give me no, my late no, defense of Starships. Yeah, but yeah. I love Traveler. So it, it was, that's why I went to it. And I totally agree, 100%. If it was not for playing Iron Edda under Tracy, I would not grok feet. I could not get my head around how things worked, how creative advantage worked, and how the aspects in play worked, and how having a business card on the table that said fire meant my character was on fire. Like, it just did not work. And it took sitting down and actually playing for it to make some sense. And I will admit, at this point, still some sense. I'm still <laughs> scared to death to try to run a fake game on my own. I'll yeah. play one, but I don't think I want to run one. Especially not even with my regular group of, you know, old-school, traditional D&D Warhammer players. I just can't see it going off well. Yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's definitely something that you need to uh, step into. And again, I, the same thing. I, I did Ironetta with Tracy, uh, and it was a great experience. Yeah. But it was just an experience. It wasn't a learning experience. It was a con game. So yeah. I definitely, I would love to get some more Fate XP under my belt. See, I think but, you played the second game I played with Tracy, where the first game before he started, I actually had him break down Fate for me. Right. I was like, wait a minute. Okay, look, I played, I have played, I haven't played Fate, but I've read it. And how, how does this, how does this work? Like, okay, I get this. And I had him actually draw some aspects out in that. And I don't think you were in that game. So yeah. that's probably what you missed that I got. 
And that was Diaspora and a discussion of fate in general. <laughs> yes. Hey, it happens. We, yep. we, this, is, this is why we have a show. We have banter. We talk back and forth. It's not just a list. All right. Up next, Catacombs from Aaron West. Uh, this is another one I didn't know off the top of my head was Canadian. When doing the research, as soon as I saw it, I'm like, of course that's Canadian. Because I have seen Aaron at every Canadian con I have ever been to, which isn't a lot, but also every Canadian con I've ever seen advertised. If there is a con in Ontario, Aaron is there showing off Catacombs. Catacombs is a very unique game. It is a dungeon crawl, like a, a full-on dungeon crawl, like think Descent or possibly even Gloomhaven. But instead of using dice or card-driven, it's a flicking-based dexterity game, like think Pitchcar or Crokinole. Like one player does the flicking for the bad guys, and all the other players control their own hero. You flick to move your character. If you're an archer, you have arrows, and you put your arrow on the board, and you flick it, and the mage has a fireball, and you put the fireball down, and you flick it, and the summoner summons snakes by flicking them. Like, you flick and move everything. This is so neat. And and there is leveling up, and there is improving your characters. It has all the stuff you'd expect in a dungeon crawl, but the main mechanic, once you're sitting down and actually playing out a level, is flicking your characters. Now, the one thing you do have to watch out for with Catacombs is they have gone through a large number of iterations and additions, and it's confusing. And each has, as far as I can tell, improved on the last. And I'll admit I'm a little jealous, because I had the first edition, first Kickstarter edition, and I don't want to say too much bad about Aaron, but compared to what's out now, man, that game looks terrible. Because it was all hand-drawn art, there was no color, it was black and white, and you just had stickers put on wooden discs, and the wooden discs weren't rounded. Like, it it, it looked like a kick. It looked like something he made in his basement. Because it was something he made in his basement. And nowadays, you look at Catacombs, and it looks so shiny, and I, I'm slightly jealous. What I probably should do is just bite the bullet and pick up one of the new editions. So, speaking of which, the latest edition that I could find is Catacombs Conquest. And what it is is supposedly a new newer, lighter, introductory version of the game to get you into the world of Catacombs. I gotta say, this is not for everyone. I have had friends I've taught this to that thought it was amazing and fantastic, and I've had friends that said, no, ever make me play that game again, Mo. So, fair enough. Not everyone likes dexterity games. No, absolutely. It, it, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. Uh, there are actually four Catacombs games currently up on their store right now. So there's Catacombs, the third edition, I which think that's is the, core set, the, the newest right? the newest version. Uh, well, there's they're all core games, technically. Okay. Uh, so Catacombs third, third edition is the core of what you got as the first Kickstarter. Uh, and then there's Catacombs Conquest, Catacombs in Castles, and Catacombs Cubes, and... They also have expansions on top of that. But those four, uh, Cubes, 3rd Edition, Conquest, and Castles, are all considered core games. Okay. So, but I understand they are compatible in some way, too. I didn't dig into it, but there's... Yeah. Like, I, I think they can all add on to each other. Because Catacombs and Castles does a siege. It's it's one player's inside the castle, someone's else is outside. But Because that one I saw at Breakout, because Adam was there. Well, and that was the Aaron. Dexterity Dungeon Crawl, Catacombs. All right, this one makes sense to be Canadian, and this is a the, the heavy Euro of my list. This is Quebec, or Quebec, from Philippe Bédouin and Pierre Poisson-Marquis. Quebec, the game, is an abstract strategy Euro with quite a bit of weight. It's not the heaviest game, but it's definitely the heaviest game on the list today. Actually, to be honest, I'm not sure when you told me how high... Um, uh, the, 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 the Rising Sun was. I didn't think, I don't think a Rising Sun is heavy. There are a lot of rules. So this might not be as high as Rising Sun, but it's up uh, there. Rising Sun, Rising Sun is, uh, on, on BGG anyway, uh, above Quebec. 
yeah, so sorry, it's not the highest on the list. Personally, I think this is heavier than Rising Sun. I found Rising Sun much more approachable. But anyway, doesn't matter. Now, this I personally think is a hidden gem. No one talks about this game, and I don't know why. Uh, it's put out by one of the bigger publishers, Mayfair, or one of those, I can't remember right now. One of the big Euro publishers. Nice big box, wooden cubes, lots of cardboard, um, lots of chits. It, the theme is there, pasted on as much as any of these. You're the head of a family working to build the walled city of Quebec. You're going to start off with round one buildings, and you're going to build different zones. And of course, in this version of Quebec, everything's round, because like I said, it's an abstract. It is definitely a Euro. Um, you're, you are building the walled city of Quebec. Now, the neat thing is, along with the, the whole city building and resource management and building an engine, there's this neat thing where there's area majorities in the corner of the board that represent the, the zones of influence. So you have religion, politics, commerce, and culture, the four things that help build Quebec. And what happens here is you're doing an area majority, but there's a cascading system where the player who wins the majority in one spot gets to take half of their cubes and then cascade them into the next spot. And then if they win that one too, they can take half their cubes again and cascade them to the next spot. It's, an, it's a neat thing I've not seen in another game. If you are into medium-heavy Euros I, and haven't tried Quebec, I do strongly recommend checking this one out. Like, like no one seems to have talked about this game. I love it. It's great for that, that meaty Euro feel. All right, well, that was Quebec, and it's not that much uh, below uh, the other one, uh, but uh, but it is. Uh, I think it's like a three two to a two eight or something like that. So there you go. It's it's within your. It's sort of within that that fudge. That medium factor. heavy, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's they're both above the two five, right? So they're both above that the halfway mark on the yep. uh, on the weight schedule. So which, which for Quebec. us the, the main the one we go with a, a two five is race for the galaxy. That's what right. we at least it was last time we looked. Race for the Galaxy was, to me, the, the penultimate 2-5 on Board Game Geek. So it's more complex than Race for the Galaxy, but supposedly lighter than... lighter. Than, and it's so different than than Rising Sun. It, I don't weight know. Is I, 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 weight, yeah. Weights are so subjective. <laughs> anyway, enough about that. I dig Quebec. I think Quebec's harder, heavier and harder to learn and harder to win than Rising Sun. Up next, we got an older RPG, uh, way older. This is from a Canadian publishing company, DreamPod9. They made a number of licensed games back in the day, a lot of them anime-inspired. But the game I liked best from them was actually Heavy Gear. Uh, this was designed by Philippe Boulle, Jean Carrière, Elie Charest, Jean Marcel, Guy-Francois Vela, Marc et Veneza. Heavy Gear was... They're, I, I, I'm going to say it, a ripoff of Battletech. It, it was them trying to do something different from Battletech. But what they were trying for was something you saw in Japanese anime, which was fast-moving, quick, lots of action. So they were aiming for a fast and furious mecha battle system versus uh, Battletech, which is a, a slog. It's a slow, big, heavy mechs trundling through the woods, firing off lots of missiles and guns, whereas these were smaller mechs, more mobile, longer-ranged weapons, a lot more based on grabbing cover. The mechs actually had wheels on their feet so they could spin around corners. If you've ever seen, like, Lelucha the Rebellion, which is a, probably the perfect example of the mech style from Heavy Gear. That's an anime that's popular for some people. I It 
did a neat dice pool system called the silhouette system, which at the time was groundbreaking to me. It was very different than your standard roll high, roll low on a D20 or your percentile systems. Uh, it was about rolling rolling sets of dice and then making pairs. Well, not pairs, but sets. Like, I roll six dice and I pick two to be my effort and I pick another one to be the effect. It did some really neat stuff. It's, it's dated. It's old. It's not something I'm currently playing or probably I'm never going to play again. But I still wanted to give it a shout out because I think it did a really cool stuff for the mecha industry in the mecha field like they even went on that the the people who made the mech warrior video games when they lost the battle tech license put out a, ba- a heavy gear video game that used a lot of the same controls as the mech warrior series and i actually own that too and it again it was neat because your mechs were so much quicker it was just faster battles so yeah it's an interesting history behind the whole uh dream pod nine uh they were actually formed in order to publish the uh protocol addicts ma- uh, magazine Mag- in north america yeah. um and then partnered with Activision to put out the Heavy Gear game yeah. that turned into the role-playing game, uh, even though they'd oh, already so been the, developed. The, the video yeah. game, the video game came, came, came before the role-playing game, but they had been working on some card-based Heavy Gear games sort of previously, okay. but the RPG is actually a uh, direct uh, child of the Heavy Gear. Right. They partnered Fair. with Activision for that game. So that was Heavy Gear from DreamPod 9. All right, next up, we've got some more area majority scoring uh, like we had in Quebec, and that is in New York, 1901. Uh, from Chenet La Salle, I may be pronouncing that one off. Not that my French is ever good. I do apologize for my French accents. I'm, do- I'm better at the French than I am at names like Velada Chavadal. Um, <laughs> when this game came out, New York, 1901, and I don't know why, like I don't know where this came from, but when New York 1901 from Blue Ridge Games was announced, everyone was shouting, this was going to be the next ticket to ride. This is going to be the next game that everyone's talking about for years. And I'm sad to report it never just took off. Though I personally would rather play this because it's, it's a game about building skyscrapers in New York. I That has a slightly neater theme and there's a little bit more to the mechanics than just, uh, you know, uh, Rummy, which is a lot of what Ticket to Ride is. Um, I do see why people compare them why they say it's this is like Ticket to Ride, because they use a very similar card drafting mechanic where you're, you're grabbing colored cards, and then by having a set of colored cards, you can put up a building, but that's pretty much where the similarities end. Uh, this one's really solid. Like, it's a, it's a good gateway game. Uh, it's not, probably not going to keep your heavy gamers interested all that often, but it's a good one to have in your collection for the people that, when they show up, go, hey, I want to play Ticket to Ride. You're like, you know what? How about we try 1901 instead, in my opinion? Yeah, it's a shame. I think a lot of people expected this to be more than what it was, which has led to its current place on on Board Game Geek. Um, and it you read through the the um, the ratings on it, and and really the feeling you get is people were rushing out to buy this game, yeah, and not getting what they expected. So somewhere in the marketing and the buzz around this game, it let them down uh, because it doesn't seem like a bad game. No. It's just not the game that the heavy gamers or the, the, the super purchasers wanted it to be. Yeah. Let's say, I don't know. I, I'll admit, I don't love it, but I like it as a gateway game. I, I like it as something to introduce people to the hobby. And it's one I will, again, I will strongly recommend it. If someone's like, Hey, I'd like to play ticket to ride. I am not a big fan of ticket to ride. I would push this as an alternative. Yep. So that was New York, 1901. All right, I like to try to include these on our list because I am not a huge Wargame fan, but I know we do have Wargame fans listeners, and I like to try to represent different areas of the hobby. And 
I know I've mentioned this one before because there are certain war games I do dig. Um, 1812, which we mentioned earlier, is one. But they're going heavier, significantly heavier, is Hammer of the Scots by Tom Dagalich with Jerry Taylor. This is the Scots versus the British in the time of William Wallace. You are literally playing out the movie Braveheart, though I'm sure this is probably more historically accurate. Um, this is a multiple award-winning zone-based war game. So that means you have zones on the map. You don't have to follow roads and you're not on hexes. Um, and it's using the Columbia Games block mechanic. Now, this mechanic is is brilliant. This is what made Columbia Games, what put them on the map. And that is the fact that you are using blocks that are stood up instead of laying down. So you're taking your chits and you're tipping them up, which does two things. First of all, you get a fog of war because you can't see what your opponent has. Though so you can tell they have units somewhere, but you don't know what units. And second, they actually use the stats and strength of the unit based on which side of the cube is faced up. And you rotate blocks. So if you level up your troops, they turn clockwise. And if they take damage, they turn counterclockwise. And different stats show at the top of the, 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 the cubes. And it's brilliant. This is a fantastic system. It's been used by many games. Um, many people, myself included, considered this to be the best two-player block game that's ever been put out. Well, uh, I, I am not a war gamer, and uh, and I am not even as interested in, in, in the, the few of them that you are. So yeah. I will just say that was Hammer of the Scots. Though I want it. We used to play Warhammer with all the miniatures. This yeah, no. Cubes I, instead of minis. Yeah, yeah, no. I, I could get into the fantasy. Again, the, the fantasy is, is, is yeah. the big part of that for me, or was anyway. Yeah, your answer then is Wizard Kings. That is the Columbia box game where you play fantasy armies. But that one actually plays like up to ten players. It's crazy. You can. It's just a ridiculous large number of players that can play that. Though I still think it plays best too. All right, one final role playing game. Uh, this is the final game I have on our list for tonight. This is one that I absolutely love. I wasn't sure if I should throw this on the list, to, to be honest, because it's partially from a Canadian game designer. Because once you get into big games from big companies with big names, like Marvel Heroic Roleplaying from Margaret Weas Productions, you get a lot of people on the team. Now, the Canadian in question is Philippe Antoine Menard. Uh, someone who I actually know really well from the G plus days is a Canadian who worked inside alongside many others on this game, uh, including Cam Banks, Dave Chalker, Robert Donahue, Matt Forbeck, uh, John Harper, Will Hindmarch, Jack Morris, Norris, sorry, <laughs> Jack Morris would be something else. Uh, Jesse Scoblum and Aaron Sullivan. Now the thing is Philippe's name is on every book that was published for this awesome RPG. Like every single one has Philippe's name on there. So I have to assume he had a good part to do with it. So I'm, I'm claiming this as a Canadian game. So we're, I, as Canada, we're claiming this. And if you don't like it, we'll go burn down the white, white house like we did in the war of 1812. So anyway, uh, I love this RPG. It was great. The problem is the game died. It, it died like just starting to bear fruit. Uh, Margaret Weas productions lost the license because the people at Marvel decided they were going to do some new movie thing back in the day. Now, Marvel heroic, Role-playing is narrative-based dice pool system that, to this day, is the only superhero system I played that actually lets you pair off heroes and villains that are completely different from each other, and it works. Like, this is the only game I know where Spider-Man can defeat the Hulk by causing him enough emotional stress to make him cry and turn back into Bruce Banner. And that happens mechanically, not just through the story. 
curse that MCU film franchise for stealing our role-playing fun. <laughs> yes. But, alas, that was Marvel heroic role-playing. Obviously, that whole movie thing didn't turn out so well for them, so I don't know why we don't still have our game. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Despite that being the end of our official list, I do have a few honorable mentions I want to toss out there. Uh, these weren't included for a number of reasons, some of which I'll mention, some I won't. So the first one I think has to be mentioned is Crokinole, a dexterity game that seems to be, honestly, like in the last two years, sweeping the world. Like every podcatcher, podcaster, damn can't say podcaster. <laughs> Almost every podcaster I listen to, including people as far down south as Texas, are suddenly buying up crokinole boards and playing crokinole and going together at cons, and there was supposed to be an Origins crokinole tournament. Now, I tried to do some look into this to find out who the designer was. It seems to be uncredited, though everywhere does seem to accept that it is a Canadian invention. So, uh, er uh, Eckhart... Wetlawfer in eighteen seventy six in Ontario is credited often see, I, by. I, as, see, I found as, people as, as that disputed that when I looked it up. And so there, I there, wanna... there are more than likely disputes, but yeah. I'm going to say it was uh, Eckhart Wetlawfer in eighteen seventy six here in Ontario who there created Crokinole. But in twenty seventeen, in the city square in Winnipeg, they created Crokinole Curl which may be the most so, Canadian game ever, which is a giant curling rink version of Crokinole. Yeah, that is, is definitely Canadian. Like, <laughs> we got to add a way to snap our necks while we're playing Crokinole. Slip on the ice. Totally fair. And yet, I don't know if there'll be a board game of that one. It'll probably be the same game, right? Fair enough. All right, next, I got Kodama 3D. Uh, this is from Erica... Boyuris, along with Daryl Andrews. And the reason I throw this on there is because I was supposed to play this. This was literally, like, I run gaming events, or I help run gaming events at the CG Realm on two weekends a month. And Kodama 3D was the game we were supposed to have when the pandemic hit. And it was the first event we had to cancel. So I'm throwing that on the list because I really dig Kodama, and Kodama 3D looked neat. And speaking of Erica Boyuris... She has a very cool-looking miniature game coming out this year, which is Scott Pilgrim Miniatures The World, which is coming from Renegade Games, who just had a smash hit with their Power Rangers miniature game. So this one is looking hot. Absolutely. Uh, I, I ran into Erica at the panels for Breakout Con last year, and she was uh, hosting quite a few of them. Actually, Daryl as well was was hosting quite a few of them as, as local uh, Torontonians, uh, and they were really great. And Erica is really involved in the uh, game developers market and the game designers market in Toronto. She hosts a lot of the proto-TO events. Um, and so it's great to see her involvement, not only in her own games, but in helping other people get their games to market as well. All right. The next one, uh, the chat room's been waiting for this one, it seems, is, but wait, there's more. This is one of my all-time favorite party games. Uh, it's by the Bamboozle Brothers, Sen and Jay, who I mentioned earlier when talking about Junk Art. I didn't include this on the list for one reason. Um, I already put Junk Art on. But the reason I mentioned Junk Art instead of this is because it is out of print and impossible to find. Uh, I actually reached out to Sen and Jay just this past week on Twitter, and they have recovered the license, so they can put this out. They are just looking for publishers. So, hey, publishers, any publishers listen to our show, 
get this game out. This game's great. Like, I personally think, like, Smirk and Dagger games or um, Smirk and Laughter would actually fit better for this particular one. But the, or, or even the op. These are, like, the, the company puts out telestrations, right? Like, pick this one up. How do you not have this? CGE with yeah, their... Like, like, this is the kind of right game up, that should well, be back right out there. It's right up uh, the Ops Alley, I think, with some a lot of the stuff they're doing these days. Uh, maybe a little light for them. Um, I don't think it's, it's not. Doesn't seem like a Renegade property necessarily. No, not. But not, but not more really. towards the Op. Who uh, published that um, was, Train of Thought? Train of Thought was another Bamboozle Brothers game. Were, another pretty good party game, actually. I wonder who published that or if they could put it out. Uh, train of Thought is Tasty Minstrel. Tasty Minstrel, okay. Tasty Minstrel's done a lot of restructuring, so that one I don't know. Yeah. They've also done, um, they also did Belfort from Sen. I don't know if, if Jay was involved in that one. I know Sen was involved in that one. Belfort, I only ever played once with uh, one of the locals, Will Chamberlain, who's in the chat. Belfort was a solid game. And that I only was- played it the one time, though, so it didn't get on my list because I haven't played it enough to love it. And I do love Junkart, so. And that All was, right. But wait, there's more. Yes, but wait, there's more. There is one more. Uh, finally, on the RPG front, I just want to call out uh, one particular person, actually, and their maps. The maps of Dyson Logos. Uh, Dyson from Ottawa, Ontario, is responsible at this point for creating a mapping style. Like a recognizable, people see it, style of dungeon mapping. Uh, it's based on thick lines and a very distinct form of hashing. I have been a fan of Dyson's work since I found him on G+. Back when he was like literally starting off. like He had a, he had a day job, his girlfriend had a day job they're struggling to pay their bills to now he has a patreon he has the dodecahedron books coming out and at this point his book maps are showing up in wizards of the coast books for 5e D. the last few modules that have come out have had dyson maps in them and it is awesome to see him go from struggling person who drew maps in his spare time to a full-time D mapper which is just awesome Absolutely. That's always great to see. Uh, and uh, and just to, to top things off, I'm going to toss it a couple more Canadian classics for the holiday. We've got games like Ramoli, which is Canadian. Trivial Pursuit, yeah, also I knew Canadian. That one. I, I wasn't going to put that on a top anything list. Trivial Pursuit's a horrible game. And The Game of Things are all Canadian games, good or bad, that uh, represent some of the history of Canadian gaming. I Balderdash well, isn't terrible. Well, that's it for our list of great tabletop games from Canadian designers, plus a few others. Now, <laughs> let's head over to the lobby to see if the awesome folk gathered there have anything to add. All right, so the big thing from the lobby, and I think we do have some in there, is what do we miss? What do we miss from Canadian game designers? Now, one of the caveats is I tried to only list one game from each designer because I probably could have done an entire list of Sen and Jay's games and Eric Lang games. We probably could have done a top 20 of just by those designers. So that makes perfect sense uh, of that. So if we missed any from those designers, that's somewhat intentional. Uh, and we were also keeping games that we that we had played. Well, so there's that, that, does, that definitely does limit things... Uh, uh ourselves as well so but totally fair if there's any others we miss i'd love to have them because we'll throw them in our show notes for people to check out so i see mask of the red death by adam wise adam wise i don't remember finding on my list of canadian designers at all uh, he how did that though. yeah i wonder how i missed that one um and uh, like, yeah. if we look at i mean just looking at like daryl andrews games um well, yeah. he puts out a lot of games <laughs> Oh, there's uh, war games. I cannot believe how many war games are from Canadian designers. 
There are a ton. All right, going through the chat quick. Um, Pennywise loves Rising Sun, favorite cool mini or not game. Despite it being on my top list, I actually just sold my copy. I guess it's just it's it's too big. The teach is heavy, and it only really plays well with five players. And it just didn't come out enough. And the huge map and the packing away the miniatures, like I dig it, but I just I never actually want to play it. <laughs> I didn't even try all the different rules. Like I got the full Daimyo box, and I never tried the two uh, Eastern Asian teams. I don't remember what they called them, but the, the Golden Empire or whatever. I tried the Kami Unbound, but there was another expansion, the Extra Monsters I never even tried. So Pennywise does note that Sagrada with symbols instead of pips would work. So blue and purple is also a problem. Yep. No. They, so Pennywise, Ryan in the chat room is actually legally blind. So he has even more sight problems. So he often points out uh, accessibility issues with games we're talking about, which we highly appreciate. Yeah, and there's a couple of times uh, that I've I've grabbed stuff and gone into. There's a couple of um, simulators uh, that take well, you can take photos of mm -hmm. uh, of your merchandise and go through and check through all the different forms of colorblindness uh, for stuff like that. So Roxley Games, I know they're a Canadian publisher, but I don't know if Dice Throne is by Canadian designers. I do know Roxley was one of the Canadian companies that came up. Um, Academy Games was located in Canada originally. Mercury Games is Canadian. Santorini is Pennywise's favorite abstract game. It's not my favorite, but I do dig it. Um, Brass, I almost put in because one of the designers on Brass Birmingham, which is the newest version where they added beer and stuff, but I don't know how much the Canadian impacted that. Like, it's Martin Wallace's Brass. Everyone knows it as Martin Wallace's Brass. So, I, I like, Deanna and I have talked about that. I'm like, oh, I, I wish there was a way to know, right? Like, even Philip Menard on, on Marvel Heroic. I'm like, all right, the fact his name's on every book must mean he had something to do with the mechanics, not just, like, he's an artist. So I decided yeah. to toss him in there. And I had a hard time finding some of the... Um, so Dice Throne Adventures is uh, Nate uh, Chatelier, Manny Tremblay, and Gavin Brown are the Sound game like designers. French names, but that doesn't. Yeah, I don't. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah, yeah, we did have two Disarray games. That wasn't on purpose. Quebec, unfortunately for you, Ryan, would not be accessible. He's noting that he almost picked it up many times. The designer did PDF historic briefs for Quebec, so I guess it's more thematic than it looked. Lots of Milton Bradley games. Um, cats. From Chieftain Games, from what I understand, is a Canadian game. Though I can't, couldn't find a designer on that. But wait, there's more we did mention. Crokinole was the number one trying to figure out where Manny Tremblay is from, but it doesn't seem to say. The top eight him. debate. So now that we're in um, Beyond, Balderdash is better. See, I don't know if I played that. I remember playing the original Balderdash. Yeah, I've never played Beyond Balderdash. So now, now that we are in the, the lobby, I do want to give a shout out to a fellow podcast that is the Everyday Board Games. Uh, they are also here on Twitch, Everyday Board Games, one word. Uh, I say that a lot. They had I checked out the show during the virtual gaming con and really enjoyed it. Uh, the two hosts had a great camaraderie back and forth. The show I happened to watch was a top eight debate where they pick a certain criteria. When I did it, I'm going to forget the artist's name, but it was a specific artist. It was all games that featured this one artist. They picked eight games. They put it into a bracket, discussed the merits and flaws of each, and eventually came up with a winner. It was uh, really enjoyable to watch. I, I stayed there for the entire show. I was just going to check in, and I'm like, nope, I got hooked. So I stayed around, so that was pretty cool. Uh, Vincent Dertrait was the artist that they featured. Uh, and Gavin Brown, who's another one of the Dice Throne Adventures person, featured on uh, Brass Birmingham, Super Motherload. Yeah, that was the one that was on Brass Birmingham. He's actually, 
he's actually got I'm not sure what his branding portfolio is because he's got Brash Lancashire and Birmingham down so there. Yeah, so he might be an artist too, uh, or something. And right? Santorini, uh, but he's huh. in Calgary. But he's he's definitely Canadian. So uh, Gavin Gavin Brown is definitely Canadian. There you go. Fair enough. Super Motherload. I haven't tried. I've heard it's dig dug the board game and pretty good, but I have not gotten to try it. Um, Jamie did not like Sagrada. Really, I actually really like Sagrada. I, it's up there with Azul for me. I, I I know a ton of people who just love it. So yeah. it's. I, I like that one a lot. Hey, no problem. Thank you for joining us, Daniel. And then whoever Nate Chatelier is, is just Dice Throne. <laughs> he's he's yeah, got all the Dice Throne stuff too, here, right? but that's all he seems to have. Done. For Canadian designers, while wow, there is a list on Board Game Geek, I'll try to find it again and I'll throw it in the show notes, that is all RPG board game people by province. And it's designers artists developers like it is a massive list and that's what i used to make the list today but i'll admit i gave up partway through like there were just so many and to be honest i'm on the list which is like wow they, they found me they must be thorough yeah because i i have designed a couple free rpgs and that's it so that was pretty cool that i'm like man my name's on the list i didn't feature my games i wasn't that self-serving i don't <laughs> think they're good enough to belong on this list anyway uh, all right i think we're good to move on i think oh, that's it for right. the chat room right now thank well, you all for interacting that's it for our main topic tonight. You can find lots of gaming topics and advice like this over on the blog at tabletopbellhop.com. Just click on Gaming Advice at the top of the page. Finally, if you got a game or game night question for us, head over to the website and click on Ask the Bellhop or email me directly at questions at tabletopbellhop.com. Up next, a look at Supercats from the Op. Supercats was designed by a ridiculously big number of big name game designers. Uh, these names include Antoine Bauza, Corentin Lebrat, Ludovic Montblanc, Nicholas Uri, and Theo Riviere. It features artwork from Xavier Gwenefi Durin. Now, here in North America, it was published by The Op. Supercats plays three to six players, and a game takes uh, well under 15 minutes. No prototype this week. That means the best way to see what you get with a shiny new copy of Supercats is to watch our unboxing video that went live Monday on YouTube. Now, I do have to admit, there's not a lot to see in this one. Uh, it's cards and cards and more cards. It's just a bunch of cards. Cards with cats and cards that make up a giant robo dog. And then a couple reference cards. Now, I will say, the cats are pretty damn cute and their superhero versions are pretty cool. So the art, I definitely give a thumbs up. And you can even see some of the art of, of some of the cat decks and watch Mo fully assemble the super dog thing live in the unboxing. Robo uh, dog. As well, uh, I flash up some uh, samurai pizza cats so you know what the heck we're talking about. Yes, totally true. So what does one do with all these cards and cats and robo dog parts on them? All right, so... There's a dead simple game. It's played in two episodes. Episode one is Transformation. Here each player forms a team of five regular cats and battles to be the first to transform their cats into super cats and become the hero of episode two. Players each select five cat cards. Uh, these are placed face up in front of you, cat side up. Uh, each round, you're simultaneously going to go super cats and hold out one hand showing zero to five fingers. Now, the player who's holding up the highest unique number wins the round and will flip over some of their cats. What they get to flip is based on the number and that is also indicated on the reference cards, in case you forget this. Now, really quickly, zero flips two. One flips one of their cards, cats, but then gets to use two hands next turn. The next 
ones are two and three, which are both flip one cat. And then there's four, which you get to flip one of your cats and one of your opponents. And five, which lets you flip only one cat. But then next round, you got to hold out a two. First player to flip all their cats wins. Episode one. Pretty str- simple. Five normal cats combined to form. No, not quite. Um, <laughs> That's going to be the expansion, the, the Super go. Cats Voltron Combiners expansion. I could totally see that. There's got to be an expansion. Come on, Anton Bowser. What are you doing? You're going to make like hard co-op games. You could be doing the Super Cats combo. All right. Once you're done, episode two, you go, or sorry, episode one, you go into fight. Here, the players use their super powered cat team. The hero player, the one that won the first round, is going to face off against Robodog, which is played by the other players. The winner from round one keeps their five superpowered cats in front of them. Everyone else can get rid of their cat teams from play because now it's time for them to play the Robodog. Now, Robodog is assembled by placing 12 cards out on the table uh, in a certain pattern that makes this horrible looking four-legged, four-armed Robodog thing. From here on in, it's the hero player versus everyone else. Similar to the first round, everyone simultaneously goes Robo Dog and then holds up a hand, showing zero to five fingers. If any Robo Dog players match the hero's number, the hero then has to flip over a number of cats equal to the number of players they match with over to their non superhero side. At any point, the hero has only normal cats left, they lost. Robo Dog takes the day. If the hero player manages to throw a unique number, they do damage to Robo Dog equal to that number. Now, remember, Robodog's made up of 12 cards. Well, each card's one health. You just remove a number of cards equal to the match. Now, there's also special rules for the Super Meow. This is if the hero manages to throw a fist, which is zero, and not get matched, they then can swap all of their basic cats back to the superhero side. Episode 2 continues until the hero's defeated or the Robodog's defeated, with victory going to the opposite side. Now, along with this, there are some special rules for play with free five or six players. It involves sometimes having to have two hands out or adding special gold or silver cats that do a whole tuxedo mask thing where they soak some damage and then disappear. Uh, That is pretty much it. So Rochambeau, the card game. Yeah, exactly. Because I got to say, this one is something else. Um, When I first got this, I was surprised. So I had gotten a hold of the op. And asked uh, to review a couple games. And this wasn't one I asked to review. This is something the op just tossed in my shipment along with Batman Talisman, Villain, Batman Talisman Super Villains Edition and Telestrations Upside Drawn. Both of those we'll be talking about later in the show. And then I'm like, what, what the heck is this box with the Super Cats? And to be honest, the back of the box didn't say much on it. So then I recorded an unboxing video, right? And again, I'm confused because I don't think I've ever seen a hobby card game where the cards have nothing on them but art. Like, there's nothing. There's no numbers. There's no suits. There's no bonuses. There's no text. And then I was even more confused because this, like, dead simple game was by some of the biggest names in board gaming. Like, seriously, like, I mean, we go through the list again just to give you some of the other games they make. So Antoine Bauza, he's the designer of Takanoko Seven Wonders and Hanabi. Corentin Labrat did Draftosaurus, Once Upon a Castle and Ninja Academy. Ludovic Montblanc did Cyclades, Mr. Jack and Cash and Guns. At least Cash and Guns kind of fits the theme here. Nicholas Ori did Mercurios. And Theo Rivera did Nagaraja, Sea of Clouds, and Shinobi Wata. Like, these are not 
Like, th these are top thousand games, probably even higher up there. I I'd have to look up. Seven Wonders has got to be top hundred on Board Game Geek. Like, these are not unknowns, right? And I don't get it. But what I picture, and I don't know if this is true, but this is my theory, is they're at Essen, probably, Essenspiel, because these are mostly European game designers. And it's, like, late at night at Essenspiel, and they're at a bar, and they're having some beers. And they're like, what game can we improve on? And someone's like, I bet you can't come up with a better version of Rock, Paper, Scissors. And then these people sitting around drinking are like, all right, let's do it. And they... Super Cats was the answer. That That's my theory on where this game came from. Well, apparently uh, it was announced as late as September 2017 as part of the yellow mini games line. And the, the group of designers. That's not even the same publisher then. The group of designers are known as the Tokyo Boys because of their fondness for visiting Japan and hitting up the Tokyo game market. Okay. So it's still at a con, but it was at the Tokyo game market. And I got to say, Tokyo Boys still sounds like a drinking group. I don't know if they were drinking, but I, I playing this game, I think they were drinking. Apparently, the original name for it was Sentai Cats, not not surprisingly. That makes sense. Sentai yeah. Cats. Actually, it fits the Sentai because you got the five heroes. That's the whole Super Sentai. Th yep. There's a whole thing there. That fits actually even better. Anyway, gameplay. Uh, I already told you how to play. Like, that was it. it. It's a simple card game. You can play a full game in under 15 minutes. This is the very definition of a quick filler game. Now, this is both what's great about Super Cats and what's wrong with it all at once. Like, if you need a quick game that you can teach anyone in under five minutes and finish the full game in under 15, this can be a fun choice. This can be a great way to get people in the gaming mood. Like, personally, I think that's the niche this game fills, is the very start of the night, you got people who are kind of milling about, they're not sure what to do, you get them all to sit down at the table together and play something silly to, to loosen up and... and start the, the the social interaction it could also be something good when you're waiting for another game to finish like if you're at a, a big gaming event where there's multiple tables and you finish early maybe super cats is something you can grab to play while the other game finishes up yep yeah, no absolutely that's uh i mean there's there is definitely a place in the world for games that play that fast yeah. now what i can't see is anyone doing playing a Super Cats game night, right? I'm never going to be like, Sean and Corey and Kat, come over. Let's play some Super Cats. It's not going to happen. Not not for me, at least. Like, there are some filler games out there. You might want to do that. Like, you'll have them over and, like, we're going to play this 10 times or 20 times. Like, I have spent many hours playing Concept or playing um, Code Names in a row. I just can't see it for this one. It's just not something I would want to do with Super Cats. And I gotta say, my cat kids even felt the same way. Because after about two rounds, they're kind of done and ready to move on to something less silly. Now, at this point, my kids are 10 and 12. And I do think, like, I wonder, I can't test this because I can't time travel, that if they might have liked it a lot better if they were much younger. Well, I think especially because your kids in particular have already been delving deeper into the the hobby gaming world. Yeah. Um a light filler to the game to them is still a light filler game. Whereas for a more general audience, um, you know, the light filler is enough and the fun, the fun graphic. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, the yeah. art on these cards is great. And, and that combined with just some fun family, you know, fist throwing is enough to, to make it a good game. Uh, whereas, you know, they're already getting into the more uh, quad heroes level yeah. of, of games yep. that, um, no, totally that, that aren't the, the filler. I got to say, though, um, with this game, like this is a game about superpowered cats. And this couldn't keep my kids attention for more than two rounds. Like they were more than happy to play it two times. And then, you know what? A few days later, they're willing to play it again. But I really don't think this one's going to keep any adult engaged for much longer. Like I I'd be 
surprised if you got two rounds out of most people. Unless they didn't quite get it the first round. Unless you had that, oh, now I get it. Let's play again. I don't think you need a lot of it. Like, this is a fun activity. It's cute. You're going to have some laughs. And again, I think it's great as a startup, a warm-up game to get people talking and engaged. But to me, it's not much more than that. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely one of those things where, hey, we got to kill some time here. Hey, you know, I got this in my back pocket because yeah. again it's a small little you know single single deck basically uh, of cards um that's great that way but no it, it's not it's not a hobby game uh, for one thing it's 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 uh it's fun life hill and, and it's one of those games too i could see with um at the start of the night right like more people are showing up the game night starts at five we're gonna wait till five thirty before we start playing to give time for people to show up but you three who are here right now let's play some super cats right it's that kind of game like I, like I say, if you are looking for, for a new dead simple uh, portable, there is that bonus. Like, really, you could take this out of the box, and it's a deck of cards. 52 cards, you're done. Actually, I think it's 54, but whatever. It, it's a filler game. It's got an amusing theme. Like, check it out. Like, if that's something you're looking for, if that's a niche you need to fill. The thing is, there are lots of other games that fit that same niche. And while Super Cats is a fun diversion, it's just not that strong enough a game for me to recommend everyone rush out and pick this one up. If you don't have a filler that fits that spot, this could easily be one of them. But if you've already got a few other games that fill this niche, I don't think Super Cats is going to really add a lot to your game night. Yeah, and I mean, it's not an expensive game. It's 10 bucks on Amazon, um, which is, is fine. But you're also not getting a lot for 10 bucks. Uh, but again, it is art. And, uh, you know, the, we've talked about it. You know, if you like the Samurai Pizza Cats, there's a little bit yep. of, uh, you know, memory connection there. There's that that fun sort of feeling of the same thing. So your mileage may vary, but uh, I, I think it would actually probably make a fun uh, gift to give, um, you know, because, again, it might not be something you're going to buy for yourself, yep. but it could be something, uh, you know, fun that someone wouldn't buy for themselves that you could grab them for uh, for a Christmas gift. I will admit my mother-in-law really enjoyed it. She thought it was a lot of fun. So uh, there is definitely a market out there that's going to enjoy this game. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, for a more in-depth look at Supercats, you can head over to TabletopBellhop.com and click on Reviews. And now the Bellhop's Tabletop, where we look back and summarize what's happened since we were last year. What games hit our tables? Every week, we like to take a look back at the games we played, any events we attended, and any other cool gaming stuff that's been going on. So the big one that I know some people are looking forward to hearing about, uh, save this for the end of the show in a way, is our first play of Talisman Batman Super Villains Edition. Uh, Deanna and I broke this out on Friday night and played one game. I played the Joker's daughter. She was the Riddler. Now, the first thing that struck me just taking this out of the box, and I saw it in the unboxing video, but until I had it on the table, is how dang big this game is. Like, I got a big table. I have a huge game table. And this was a tight fit, taking up about half that table. Like, not only is the board huge. Like, at first, I'm like, man, this takes up a lot of room just with the board. But then you're not actually supposed to put cards on the board, which is a change from the original talisman. You actually put them on the outside. And then when you get the cards that are supposed to go on the inner rings, you actually put these tokens that say, like, show a bat symbol with a two. And that's also supposed to go on the outside. And then you got your player board. So there's, like, a player board and a set of three dials that goes above it. And you need your pile of gold. And you need a spot to put your followers and your objects, like... Like, I, I own a lot of table hogs, and, and I don't have a problem with table hogs. I love my anachrony. 
but I wasn't expecting it from Talisman. And just to prove a point to myself, at the end of the night, I went and grabbed my copy of Talisman, my second edition complete Games Workshop version, and put the board on top of the Batman board, and it is less than half the size. It didn't even fill the entire middle region. That is how much bigger this board is. And for those who don't know, and may not be as familiar, when we say that the Tabletop Bellhop has a large table, we're not kidding. It is actually a boardroom table yes. that they have in their gaming room. This isn't, you know, your family six-seater or even eight-seater uh, table. No, no, this is a full-on office boardroom table. Which, pro tip, if you're searching for a game table and you don't want like one of those custom game topper tables or something fancy boardroom tables are a lot cheaper than kitchen tables <laughs> all right besides being huge uh this game is pretty much talisman like it is so much talisman that a lot of the stuff is translated card for card literally like it was a rewrite a retheme uh this was such that I was sitting there and as we playing going, oh, that's this card. Oh, that's the maze. Oh, that's the castle. Oh, that's obviously the Oasis. I wonder what they did to replace the water bottle. Like it was that close. Like the baseball bats, a sword, feats are spells. Uh, talismans are your security key cards. Even Batman being in the game is actually a retheme of the Reaper expansion for Talisman 4th Edition. And Batman moves around the board. Like, that's if you roll a 1, it's a little bat symbol, and Batman can move around the board, and you try to catch the other people with it. Because in this game, you play the villains. Uh, now, I expected the game to be similar. Like, I, I knew it was Talisman. It wouldn't say Talisman on the box, but I wasn't expecting such a direct retheme of most of the game. Yeah, and, and this one's always hard. You know, you know so you're going to, whichever way they go, the company is going to run into trouble. So if they take it and they diverge too much from Talisman, they're going to get the Talisman purist saying, I just wanted Batman painted on top of my Talisman. Yeah. What are you doing? You're ruining Talisman. Whereas you're also going to get the people who are saying, no, I wanted more Batman in my Talisman. Mm -hmm. This is too much Talisman. So I, I think the safest bet is probably a paint job. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, you make it, you paint the bat on it and you... You move on. Uh, you're going to upset less people, I think, that way. No, I think that's fair. Now, what this did do, and this is important, because the most the thing Talisman is famous for, uh, the way I tend to word it is Talisman's f a ton of fun the first hour, a great race to the finish in the last hour. It's that six hours in the middle that kind of suck. And I will say that many times, because that is pretty much how the original plays out. Um what this does is it streamlines it. It greatly speeds up the gameplay from the original. Uh, this is done in a few ways, and I'm going to mention them all here, even though I'll be reiterating when we get to our full review, but I think it's worth talking about. Each of these does its own part to speed up play, and combining them all together works really well. So first off, you start with a stat increase. So instead of having your base stats, you get one level up at the start of the game. Leveling up only costs 5 XP and not 7. That's surprisingly big change in the game based on which bad guys you beat up. Uh, you don't have to roll an exact number to land on spots that let you go to the next zone. This is the biggest improvement, in my opinion. This is one, even if I bring out the old game and I want the old Talisman experience, I'm going to use this. Because I don't know how many times I kept rolling 3, 2, 3, 3, 2, 3, 2, 3, 3, 2, turn after turn, just trying to land on the damn Sentinel to go into the middle zone. That's gone. If you, you can just do it, you can, as long as you can roll far enough to move past the, the, it's the security guard, you can beat up the security guard and go to the next zone. That is fantastic. And same thing for the portal of power or whatever it's called in Batman. See, this is how similar they are. I don't remember what it is where you have to get to the middle realm. You, you don't have to roll exact and that's awesome. So that's a huge improvement right there. They split the encounter deck so that in your outer realm, you draw from one deck, the middle round, round 
or the middle kingdom, second kingdom, you draw from another deck. In the center, you draw from a third deck. And by doing that, they're able to change the, the difficulty of each region. That's huge. It's not just purely random. Uh, another big one that didn't actually come up in our game, but character death is no longer a full reset. In the original Talisman, if you died, you lost everything. You literally started, you grabbed a random character, started at level one. Now you get to inherit the previous character's objects and followers. And the biggest change, other than the fact you don't have to roll exact, is the entire middle realm, the third realm, in the original Talisman was only six squares. Once you got there, you weren't rolling dice anymore and you had to stop at every spot. So you got slowed down before getting to the end to try to give other players a chance to catch you. And each of those spots was horrible. Like they were absolutely ridiculous it was like roll 3d6 and subtract your craft and if you come up with a positive number teleport somewhere else on the board and try over like it was that bad or another one was dicing with death where you rolled three dice and if you weren't lower than your strength you lost a life and you had to keep going until you were dead or you got past it like it was over the top crazy that's all gone all of that's gone now it's just like the rest of the board you roll and you move and you pick up adventure cards until you get to the final control room where you beat up batman and if you beat up batman you win and that all of those combined meant that we finished a game of Talisman in under an hour and a half. And that's literally unheard of in the original game. Yeah, that, that's that's mind-boggling. I mean, yeah, it's just no, no one who's, who's aware of Talisman can, can, can imagine doing an hour and a half long game. Yeah. So that was my first thoughts on Talisman Batman. We are really looking forward to trying this one with uh, Deanna's sister. She's a big DC fan, comic book fan. And she's never played any Talisman games, so getting her experience on it, I think, will be really interesting. Up next, I broke out, and I, I actually reintroduced Deanna to the mind. Uh, now, both of us got to try this at Origins 2019. Uh, Wayne, the Star Wars guy, Humphrey, was the one showing it off. He was super excited about it. Uh, first few times, at least I played, I think when we played, we didn't even have a copy of the game. Uh, Wayne had a set of cards that were number one to 100, and we didn't even have, we were using something else to throwing stars, and we were kind of winging it. And this is my first time playing with the actual cards, and I got to say, I, I don't know, I dig the look. It's nice. I got to say, it was really interesting because Deanna was really reluctant to try this one. Like, almost as much as trying to get her to play a co-op. Um, well, it is a co-op, right? <laughs> this is getting her to play a co-op. But I am so glad she gave it a shot, because after three games, she was really enjoying it. Like, this was this is another one that I think is going to end up on our date night package. Like, it's another nice small package game. Um, I was surprised how well it played with two players. I had never played with only two players, so that was cool. And I got to say, no, thumb, big thumbs up for the mine. I got to thank uh, Q, local gamer, for hooking me up with a, with a, a copy of the game. That is a, or sorry, not of the mine. The game is a similar game to the mind, but this is not the same. I noticed there's now the mind deluxe, which looks more like the game and you're allowed to talk, but I, I don't know. That's but the I... mind. Yeah. Like two player worked, worked well. Oh, that's great. And, uh, you know, we, we do consider it a game here on uh, tabletop bell up. So uh, yeah, we, thinks we've made our experience still, we've made our experience. We've made our stance, but, uh, even if, if all the people don't, uh, yeah, see, there we go. We've got in the in the chat room. We've got the, another vote for activity, but uh, yep. it is what it is, and uh, it can be enjoyable. So it's it's a game you can win or lose. That's that's all you need. There is a win and lose condition, and trust me, we fought the lose condition many many times. It is not an easy game. All right, the other thing Deanna and I 
played uh, this past weekend is we tried out those map rules in Codenames Duet. Now, I, I mentioned those before when I was talking about Codenames. It was one aspect of the game I hadn't tried out before. And what these do is they change the number of guesses you get each game and the number of incorrect guesses you can make, which is the number of bystanders you can pick. So, like, the standard game is considered a 9-9, which means you get nine guesses total, nine of which can be correct guesses or innocent bystanders. So once you finish a 9-9 game, that's how you're supposed to start off every campaign, you grab this map and you mark off that you've completed Prague. Prague is the, the default game. From there, you pick another spot to go. And from Prague, you can go to Berlin, which is an 11-2, which means you get 11 clues, but only two can be innocent bystanders, or you lose. Or you can head to Cairo, which is 9-5, which is 9, and 5 of them can be innocent bystanders. Or Moscow, which is all of them. It's an 8-8, right? If you fail... You just X off the city. Like, hey, we didn't succeed at this city. If you win, you check mark it, and then you just move on to the next city. So uh, that's that's certainly an interesting way to do it. it it's not it almost isn't as much a campaign as uh, like if you get a um, a game. Uh, what's what, there's a couple I play where you know you're play if you're playing a little uh, mobile game and you get challenges, so you can yes. go through and yeah, just yeah. Do, do a bunch of challenges. It's not a campaign as much as a bunch of checkboxes to, to cross yeah. off on the way through. And and to be honest, it does not fit my definition of campaign. If you want to hear about my definition of the campaign, you can find at Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast episode X, which I don't remember <laughs> on the top of my head, where I talk about campaign games and the best campaign games for two players. We will throw a link to that in the show notes and on the blog. Uh, I don't remember it, but to me, a campaign game, there has to be something that carries over and there doesn't. There's no leveling up. There's nothing that carries over. It's just you're marking an X or a no. But anyway, I, I got to say, um, it uh, it's a neat addition to the game. And I didn't expect it to do much, but it does more than you'd think. Like like reading the rules, I read it and I'm like, I, what's this matter, right? Like who cares how many clues you get? But once you actually start using them, they have a bigger impact than you think. Because like, if you're in a city with 11 clues, that means you can take your time and give a bunch of one and two word clues. And you can just see your stack of uh, tokens that you use to represent how many clues you have left. And you're like, oh, we can take this easy. But then you get to like Singapore, which is a 6-6. Six, six, and you can't possibly win by only using two word clues. you got to do fours and fives. And it makes you think harder, right? And come up with those weird, uh, you know, Kevin Bacon six steps away card clues because the only way you're going to beat Singapore is if you're doing like wavy seven and people are like, Oh my God, what could this be? Oh, it says lays. Wait, you might be talking about lays potato chip, even though the words lays down. Okay. I think it's late. Like you got to really think outside the box and it was better than I thought. Like it actually made us kind of expand our scope and like, and I remember beating a hard one. Right. And then going to another one, go, Oh, there's 12 clues here. Okay. We can sit back. I'm like one toy soldier and it's, you know, rifle or whatever. And, and it was like, Oh, that was relaxing. Oh, we got a tense one again. And it had way more of an impact on actually playing the game than I thought it would. So that was kind of neat. So I got to say that, that, that was a more than I expected to get from that silly map thing. All right. Well, that's interesting then. Good to, good to know that, uh, it's all out there. Uh, now earlier, Today, for Canada Today, Deanna, the kids, and I all went over to Deanna's mom's place. Um, we had a barbecue. We were there with his mom and her sister. We went over early, actually, to play some gamings, uh, play some games before getting there. So that was pretty cool. We haven't gamed with anyone that isn't my immediate family in a while. So that was a nice break. Uh, now, we did start off with a five-player game of Super Cats. I wanted to play it with a couple more adults. And I got to say, it's definitely better with five than three. 
The problem with that game with playing three, and now I didn't mention this in, in the review above, I didn't think it was that big a deal, but when you have three players, the RoboDog people have to do RoboDog and put out two hands, and you have no idea, like you honestly have no clue how hard it is to hold up two different numbers until you've tried it. Like, it's like rubbing your belly and patting your head. Like, like seriously, you're, you're thinking, like, just your brain, you're like, okay, I want to do two on this hand and five here. And you're just like, I'm getting better at it. And you're like, you put out two threes. You're like, no, it's terrible. It, it, it is way harder than you'd think. Like, I almost encourage everyone at home to sit there and try to do this because it is way harder than it looks. Um, the other thing we got to do is see the silver cat in action. And I guess it's a cool mechanic. So what that is is with, a, with five in six players the hero gets these bonus cats there's a silver cat and a gold cat and what they can do is soak one round of damage so if they really screw up and you show a five and all other all four other players also show a five you just lose right because you're going to take five damage and you only have five cats well you can have the silver cat soak that so it's, it's a neat little mechanic to make it a little more fair at higher player counts so that was cool to see and and overall what we saw today was reflected in the review earlier that that my impression of the game went up a bit Though it's still silly filler game, and I admit, with the five of us, we played once, and no one was interested in trying a second round. Well, and that's, I mean, you know, as we said, it's it's a fun little filler, but you don't necessarily want to play a filler over and over again, you know? Exactly. Like yeah. I said, some fillers are like that, right? Like Go Cuckoo. I probably played that seven times in a row one night, but this is not one of them. Yes, and I, I will mention this on the podcast, that if you have a dog, you may not want to say robo dog over and over and over again especially if you have an excitable young dog who is heavy <laughs> lesson learned there you go all right up next we go back to code names code names duet has a team mode and i figure we're here this is a neat game it's a game that all the kids can play and i wanted to try out the team rules and i guess i think this was the hit of the afternoon because pretty much everyone loved it uh, by game three, even Deanna's sister, May Suggins in the chat right now, joined in. And we had two teams of three playing this. The only thing to note here, though, is when playing with little kids, uh, I, this is something we have to start doing. We didn't we we didn't do it, but I think going forward, once you've got your grid of five by five clues out, is read off and go through each of the words and see if you need to define them. Because it's hard for the kids to come up with clues when they don't know what the words mean. So we'd be partway through the game, and it's like all of a sudden... Little G be like, what's Crusader? Well, what's that word? She didn't even yeah. recognize it to read it. Yeah. And then what's a Crusader, right? So it's a little hard to play code names. Um, now, I will note that the game is supposed to be like ages 12 plus. So you're not really designed to play with little kids. But if you are playing with kids, I do recommend going through that. And I do have to say at this point, I think we've experienced everything there is to experience in Codenames Duet. So tune in next week. We'll probably have a full review. And to be fair, Crusader is not really a word that most 12 year olds would know. That's true. I, I'm, I'm going to give, for the amount of Warriors comics my oldest reads, she probably knows Crusaders well, but my youngest is just getting into the Warrior series. Right. So there were others too. And, and reading wrongs, words wrong. Like yeah. she really wanted the Tasty Cave because she read it as cake. That was another interesting one that came out. All right. Now, last, I broke out our shiny new copy. Uh, this is the game that I was actually contacted by the op to review, and that is Telestrations Upside Drawn. Now, this isn't on store shelves yet. You can't get it yet. Uh, I think you can pre-order a couple online stores. Um, this is a hot new version of Telestrations that's coming out. So... I will say in one way, it's Telestrations in name only. There's This is no longer the telephone game. This is no longer eat poop, you cat, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but this is still a drawing game. 
And unlike the original, instead of being a big group activity, this is a team-based game where you are going to pair off in teams of two or three. Uh, two, I think, would work best with up to six players, but you could technically do teams of three. And the way teams work with this is one player knows the word and they're holding the board. The other player has to guess the word and they're holding the pen. And the only thing you can say is up and down. So you say down, they put the pen down and you start moving the board to make the clue guesser guess. And they're trying to guess what they're drawing. Now, in addition to that, to make it a little easier, there are some clue spots on the board, like hot, cold, sounds like narrow it down, broaden your scope. Uh, to use them, though, you literally have to say, like, up and then move the pen over and say down on top of hot and then up and move it back to the board. It's definitely unique. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I, I mean, most people can't draw them with themselves yeah. working upside down. So to think that you're drawing with the paper uh, and controlling something upside down like that um, is, is kind of a, a, a third generation difficulty yes. that I struggle to conceive of um you know just 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 you know we were talking about uh trying to do two different things with your hands mm, yeah, how yeah. about how about trying to draw a cat upside down uh -huh. yourself and then imagine that you had to do it with only moving the paper instead the paper not yeah, the pen. you know yes like put a, get yourself a little bench clamp or something put a pen in it and try and draw a cat yeah. that way um I, you know, and, and hopefully none of you are shaky. I mean, my God, I can't draw a straight line to save my life. Uh, <laughs> Although sliding a board, I actually found easier than trying to draw straight. It was curves that I it was like, it was trying to try to circle on an Etch-a-Sketch is what right. it felt like. To yeah, me. no, I get that. Like it, it literally did. Like I, I never thought it sounded easy, but man, it's harder than I expected. Now, what I will say is because of that, like my daughter can draw really well. I'm a pretty good artist. None of us had drawing skill had nothing to do what was happening in this game for any of us. I think Deanna pulled off the best looking one, which she managed to draw the Tin Man from Oz somehow, and and managed to actually make it look pretty good. But like, oh, it was it it was bad. Now I will say, and I've only played this once. I already kind of want to house rule it after one game. So first thing I want to add is a timer, because our first clue was Pinecone, and. It just wasn't happening. Like it, it, we probably went 15 minutes. Like it was bad. And the rules as written are you keep playing until one of the team gets it. Ooh. And actually one of the things that's neat in this is both teams are drawing the same thing. And one of the, the advantages you can listen to the other team, which is kind of cool. So if they're getting close, you can be like, oh wait, they said pine cone. That does look like a pine cone that he's trying to like, I did dig that aspect of it, but like it went way too long. Like it was starting to not be fun. And I'm like, all right, we got to call it. Like, this is just dumb. What are we trying to draw? So I honestly think you, we might throw a timer. I don't know how long, but something that if you don't get the clue by this point, you just reset. The other thing is giving the hot, cold, whatever you're only supposed to use up and down. I think I might host rule that you can use your other finger. Like whoever's holding the board can just point to them. Right. Because it's such a pain to go up, over to hot, down, and then up and back to the drawing. And by then the person doesn't remember what you're even saying hot to. Right. So I may house rule that, that you can just tap them. Um, and playing with kids. It, normally you randomly determine the clues with a, a really, actually a very cute, uh, unique die with symbols that show like a, a world for world events and a box for things. Like they're, it's well done, neat little die. And... 
but with kids, you're going to come up with stuff they'll never get, especially with the phrases. Like, honestly, with kids, I think you just throw the phrases out the window. Right. So what we did really quickly by the first game was just like Big G and I would look at it and try to guess something that our youngest would be able to guess. Right. Because way too often there was no way. Like, the, the first thing we had was studio. And I'm like, there is no way my 10-year-old is going to guess studio no matter what I draw. And I'm not going to be able to draw well. So that would be it. I, I would say just pick your clues. Now, again, I got to admit, this is listed as 12 plus. So even more so, I'm not really supposed to be playing this with my kids, at least according to the box. So I don't know if that's on there so they don't eat the markers. If it's one of those health and safety reasons, it's 12 plus. But right. there are definitely clues that a younger kid is not going to get. Right. Yeah, no, that's a, a that's a tough one. And uh, there's so much, any of these drawing games, like even, um, you know, even just, you know, simple drawing yourself games required life experience in order to uh understand what's being drawn and things like that yeah. and 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 whenever you're whenever you're doing a drawing game uh life experience matters right it just yep. it just absolutely yep. matters where i think it would work better with kids is three player so the the the, the child would be guessing right always guessing right and you would just switch between who's drawing yeah so it is, it is worth noting um our youngest does have a learning disability that does affect her reading skills. So that is important. And we had to try to orient the cards so that the largest version of the words were forcing or facing her during code names. And the same thing when we were playing telestrations, like some of the, the concepts she's not going to understand. Right. And, and we did note before that, like, honestly, we cannot play the mind with her. It just doesn't work. We would need to rebuild the deck of cards to be clearer for her to be able to read. Yep. Uh, so, well, I don't talk about my wealth of online games on Board Game Arena because really there's just a lot of them and they're the same games for the most part. Uh, I did want to mention Rallyman GT specifically. Right. Um, we we just finished our second game of it, uh, actually, and it was a rough game because, again, <laughs> learning games on BGA isn't ideal in many cases. It's a, it's a fantastic system when you know the game, but it can be a little rough rough to pick things up. So I went through the first time and I read through the rules quickly and played around, but mm. it was, it was pretty messy. And then I sat down and, and found a uh, rules video. Now there aren't many of them. I, I mean, Rallyman GT is not a really super popular game. It seems like I guess uh, there were only a, a handful of videos about it at all. Uh, and only one that was in that sort of 15 to 20 minute rules explained that I like, I find, I find concise. Um, mm -hmm. Watching a whole playthrough can just, you know, get overwhelming and you, you miss out things because, oh, they said something on the first turn <laughs> and you have no idea. So no Rado for Sean. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, once I figured out the little details, like uh, the rules on passing other cars and, and pit stops, which none of us actually even did in the first game, uh, I enjoyed it. And I think it was really notable because talking about uh, Eric, uh, Game Time on uh, mm -hmm. Twitter, um, when we started talking about it, he's actually already ordered it into his local FLGS as soon as they can get a copy of it. Wow. Um, it's, you know, it really has been, once you get it, it's a really good racing game. Okay. And while there is a little bit of push your luck in it, it's not the pure push your luck that so many racing games are. There is a mm -hmm. lot of, of thought and planning about it. Um, and so you, you really, you're, you're balancing uh, a whole lot of different things. And, and yes, there are dice rolls, but there's also ways to mitigate dice rolls and, and, and act yes. things out. Uh, so I have to say, uh, I am really enjoying Rallyman GT 
uh, on Board Game Arena right now. And I think it's uh, got some potential for a uh, it, it would actually it would look great on a tabletop at a uh, at an event as well. So interesting. Certainly something to think about. Good racing games are hard to find. I got to say, yeah, I, everyone loves Formula D. It is definitely not my favorite. Like, it's OK. It plays 10 players. That's what I like about right. it. But like, I find most people are bored by lap one in a full <laughs> game really to enjoy it and have like the tire wear and all that matter. You have to play two laps and so few people are willing to go that far. Right. It's just not it. Now, one I do like is the NASCAR one, um, Thunder Road. But that's almost a Euro at that point. Like, it's a hand management, card-driven. Right. It's all about drafting. Like, it's from GMT Games, right? Which is a war game company. And I love it. It's fantastic. Where Rallyman looks like it might be more in between. Um, Downforce is a very popular one I haven't tried. I'm trying to think. Um, automobiles, I thought was really neat from the Planes, Trains, and Automobiles series. Okay. It's a bag builder right. where you buy different parts of your car, like different, you'll buy wheels and you put in green for wheels and you slowly build your bag and there's wear things in there and you pull them out. It was a neat game, but I honestly only played it once. So that's, that's a bad sign for any game I bought and I got to the table once. And I remember enjoying that one game, but it just it hasn't come out again. Yeah, well, I think the, the thing about Rallyman GT is that it's, it's simple enough, right? So it, it's hexagon uh, tiles you lay out uh, to build your track. Yep. Uh, curve, yeah, it looks great. Curves have some specific uh, limitations uh, that you know as to what gear you can be in, and it's really all about gears. So you've got okay. uh, six. So that's gear, similar to formula. You've got six gear dice, uh, and then you depending on what cars and you can you, you know flip over between uh, wet and dry. Uh, on, on your your player card, as it will actually flip over, uh, and you oh, slowly yeah. take damage. So if you if you make a mistake, if you get if you roll three exclamation marks during your turn uh, through various ways, you take damage, and your car takes damage. And when you take damage, you start losing dice, uh, and so you don't have as many advantages. You can't break as fast, and okay, and so that like is that. very different from uh, formula because. Formula D has got the dice for the gear, but all it is is that as you gear up, you get bigger and bigger dice. Right. No, see, this is all just, you basically, you have five dice and then you have some some coasting and breaking dice. Okay. Uh, and, and that's it. And But little things like you have to be in the right gear to be able to pass somebody. And there's only three lanes. Uh, sometimes, you know, on curves, there's only two lanes in most places. Huh. So you've it, there's, there's enough, uh, enough limitations on the track that it becomes thinky even though you're, you are pushing your luck with some of the Fair. rolling. Uh, and then there's ways to, to roll mass dice and, and get some mitigations for, for dice rolling and stuff like that. But no, I, you know, I, I really enjoying it and I would, I would put this down on the table. Sounds cool. Well, how about a look ahead? What do you have planned for the coming week? All right. So I keep talking about playing eclipse. It still hasn't happened. I don't know when that's going to fit in. Um, Longer, heavy games haven't been hitting the table as much. So I don't know. Plus, that's not a pile of obligation. That's just something I want to play because I'm excited to get it. So that's going to happen. What I want to get back to, um, some of this is I blame on you, me, social, is I re-hooked up with Roger Braslett. Roger Braslett is the man who started RPG a month, which is something I was pushing for the last three, four years now, where uh, the goal is to read one role-playing game a month. And if you go on our blog and go back far enough, you'll find a couple RPG a month articles. I obviously haven't kept it up. Like, it's been 
like two years since I've taken part in this, but I found Roger on Yumi Social and he's still doing it. And that's awesome. Like he's literally still, he's like, I miss a month now and then, but he's trying, right? And he's trying to read everything in his collection. And just talking to Roger, he's right now he's working through Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 3rd Edition and reading those. And he just read Gathering Storm. Now he's on Witches, uh, oh, what's it called? It's not Witches Brew, Witches something, whatever. The Warhammer 3rd Edition Witch Module. He's reading that. And I'm like, oh man, that's uh, just talking to him made me want to start reading RPGs. So that is something I want to get back into. Uh, plus, I got a lot of new games showing up. Um, I think we might increase our review schedule, actually, because the pile of obligations growing. Plus, there's stuff I want to review that's just stuff I want to review because we picked it up and I like it. Like, like Clans of Caledonia and stuff like that is not obligation. I bought the copy of the game, but I kind of want to talk about it. We've talked about it in the show. I'd like to publish a review on it. And between both of them, uh, the pile of obligation, the pile of shame, the stuff I've been playing, the stuff I'm excited about. I'm starting to think one review a week may not cut it. So I have a feeling starting possibly next week, we're going to move up to two game room segments. So I don't know how we're going to do that. Like you're going to refresh the screen because we're going to break these out into YouTube videos, right? We'll want two different videos. Um, so we'll probably do the game room twice and re-intro the game room twice just for that purpose. So it might sound a little silly on the podcast, but we'll be reviewing two games, at least for a little while to get caught up. Because I've got 17 games in um, the pile of shame, the pile of obligation, plus in our after show tonight, I'm going to be opening up something else, which is going to bump that number up again. And I just feel like, and there's some stuff that's it's overdue, in my opinion. So I, I kind of want to get them done and out there. So look forward to at least next week, probably as soon as next week, us bumping up to two reviews every episode. And uh, for me, speaking of RPG a month, I finally got my shiny copy of Hack the Planet in. Wow, that's thicker uh, than I thought it would be. It, it's a it's a hunk of book. It's wow. It's, uh, and some of the artwork in it is just. I mean, it has got some gorgeous artwork in it. Um, it's a, a ton of full color. Uh, art in it uh, it's a cyberpunk a uh, forged in the dark game which i'm not familiar with at all um i literally bought this book because i liked the art and uh, i was already picking up some stuff from from sam joko anyway uh because i backed their kickstarter for galaxies in peril uh and and so i i liked what i was seeing there and i hopped over to their store and and picked up uh picked up this as well because the art just completely hooked me um i don't really GM much and uh, I may never get this to the table, but uh, <laughs> I'm interested in, in reading through it and learning uh, about the forge in the dark system uh, among other things. So that's going to be my reading. Uh, and heck, reading if you, if you want to do a full read review of it, even just on the podcast, you don't have to write it. If you don't yeah. want, we can easily give you a game room segment to talk about it. There we go. We'll mess with everyone's heads then. Yeah. <laughs> And now a quick shout out and a thank you to some of our VIP guests, our Patreon backers. We greatly appreciate their support. Yuho Rutila, thank you. Colin Massey, thank you. Kator, Kator, who is that? Kator? I, it's, I don't know if I remember that name. Been so long. Uh, Duran Barnett, thanks. Timothy Th Smith, I almost said Timothy Timothy. Timothy Smith, thank you. Well, that was the double bell. That means my shift's coming to an end and we're going to have to slam that portcullis down. Though the doors to the lobby are closed and the portcullis is firmly secured, you can always find us across the web and social media as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Drop by our website at tabletopbellhop.com for more gaming content. I feel like the content we're providing would like to support our continued efforts. Please consider tipping the bellhop at patreon.com slash tabletopbellhop. 
Remember to join us here on Twitch every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern and watch for the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast to hit your podcatchers in YouTube at 2 a.m. Eastern every Tuesday. Well, that about wraps up the time we have for the show tonight. For those of you here live, thank you for joining us and be sure to stick around and join us in the penthouse suite for the after show. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And game on. on. Graphic design by Brian Weiss at RPG & Co. Music is Nimbus by Evening Land. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license.